are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is distributed by Glassbox Media and is part of the Crawlspace Media family. Welcome back to True Crime Twins, where we use our occupational and educational backgrounds in criminology and medicine to bring you crime stories each week. I'm Chloe. And I'm Melina. Thank you so much for joining us for another week of True Crime. This week, we are bringing you part three of our coverage into the Idaho murders, which took place in the early morning hours of November 13th in Moscow, Idaho, and claimed the lives of four college students who attended the University of Idaho. Zana Kornodal, Kelly Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, and Ethan Chapin. All were 20 and 21 years old and were all stabbed to death. As of late, there has been a lot going on with this case. As we talked about in part two, they have identified and arrested a suspect, Brian Koberger, a 28-year-old PhD student at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, which is a 10-mile distance from the house on King Street in Moscow, where the four were killed. Another development came out just today, January 5th, of the affidavit that gave the police probable cause to arrest him and extradite him back to Idaho. This is something from horror movies. Brian wasn't just arrested. He was initially arrested in the Poconos region of Pennsylvania, where he was visiting his parents for Christmas break. He waived extradition back to Idaho, which was the time where they were able to reveal the probable cause affidavit for his arrest because he needed to be in the state for it to be unsealed, which it was today. And there were a lot of bombshells, and that is the goal of this episode, is to unpack some of them. Before this affidavit was released, there was some speculation in the media that Koberger left behind DNA, which ultimately tied him to the crime scene. The affidavit revealed that the killer left behind a sheath that accompanied the knife used for the crime, and that it was a U.S. Marine Corps-issued 5-inch K-bar knife. The sheath was located next to the body of Madison Mogan, who was sharing a bed with her best friend since middle school, Kaylee Gonsalves. The button on the sheath that seals it was what contained the previously unknown DNA. The affidavit didn't mention the genetic genealogy that was discussed by several news sources before it was released, but it did say that they ultimately made the match after they took discarded trash that was outside of the Koberger home, and they were able to determine with over 99% certainty that the contributor of the DNA found in the trash was the biological father of the suspect. The affidavit revealed that early in the investigation, when they were looking for the white Hyundai Elantra, which was estimated between the years of 2011 to 2016, they had scoured CCTV footage in the surrounding areas at approximately 4 or 4.30 a.m. on the early morning hours of the murder and found that vehicle of interest speeding away from the scene. The affidavit revealed that the vehicle had been circling the area and had turned around over four times before ultimately stopping the vehicle. An eerie image that invokes the idea that perhaps he was working up the nerve. 
looking at surrounding cameras, they were able to trace that the vehicle came from Washington State University and then later arrived at the Washington State University area after the crime. Moscow police had asked Washington State University police to look out for the car, and one of the officers found it. When they pulled the registration, they saw that it belonged to Brian Koberger. The public didn't know this, but the police knew a general description of the killer, which was that he was over 5'10", that he was skinny, had some muscle tone, but wasn't overly muscular or athletic, and that he had bushy eyebrows. Dylan Mortensen, one of the roommates who we previously believed to be occupying the first floor of the home, but actually, according to the affidavit, was on the second floor where Zana and Ethan were both sleeping that night, had actually witnessed the killer as he was leaving. He was wearing all black clothing and a mask which covered his nose and mouth, but she was able to recall his stature and the fact that he had bushy eyebrows. And when they pulled Brian Koberger's driver's license, they realized that he was consistent with that description. For more details about what Dylan Mortensen saw and heard, she said that she was asleep and woke up to what she thought was Kaylee playing with her dog. Kaylee and Madison were sleeping on the third floor. So that's where she heard it. She heard it from upstairs. Of course, it doesn't make much sense for someone to be playing with their dog at four in the morning in a house full of sleeping roommates. My guess is what she heard was the dog sounded riled up or was growling or loudly barking, as dogs do when they're in that fake fight game that sometimes they play with their owners. What she was really probably hearing was the dog aggressively reacting to an intruder. She heard what she thought was Kaylee's voice from upstairs saying, I think someone's here, or something to that effect. Some people have speculated that it could have been Xana who said that, but she was on the same floor as Xana, so she probably would have recognized the direction of where the voice was coming from. She went into the hallway and saw nothing. So it seems that he was indeed on the third floor at this point. Then, a few minutes later, which can now be estimated to be about 4.17 a.m. based on noises captured from a CCTV camera at a residence that was about 50 feet away from Zana Cronodal's bedroom. She heard crying and whimpering coming from Zana's room. She went into the hallway to investigate. She also heard a male voice saying, don't worry, I'm going to help you. We don't know if that was the voice of the killer or the voice of Ethan Chapin, who was Zana's guest that night. But you'd think that she would have recognized Ethan's voice and known that it was him saying that. And my feeling is that it was the killer who said that. And what it instantly reminded me of was the Columbine shootings, which, as we discussed in our episode about Columbine, inspired quite the string of other killers that were at least inspired in part by Dylan and Eric, who were the perpetrators of the Columbine Massacre. At one point during the Columbine Massacre, a shot victim reached out and said, help me, and didn't know who was standing before him. And it turned out to be one of the killers. And he said, don't worry, I'll help you, and then fatally shot him. It would not shock me at all, as Koberger was a criminology student, that he was aware and perhaps fascinated or inspired by crimes like the Columbine Massacre and took that opportunity to channel Dylan Klebold 
in response to a terrified Xana. And the affidavit also revealed that a forensic examination was done on Xana's phone and revealed that she was browsing TikTok at 412 and even had a DoorDash order come at 4, which was just four minutes before Brian Koberger's car was seen in the vicinity. So while we previously were told by authorities that the victims were killed in their sleep, but for some reason at the same time, a few of the victims had defensive wounds. So it was sort of a contradictory statement in general. So I had the feeling that at least one or two of the victims were awake, if not all of them. But the account of Dylan tells us that Haley was probably awake and probably alerted Maddie. Xana was definitely awake. She heard her crying which could have woken up her boyfriend, Ethan. She heard the crying. And then the CCTV from the house next door picked up a thud shortly after. Xana was found on the floor with apparent sharp force injuries, as was Ethan. It didn't say where he was found, but he was in the bed, I'm assuming. And now a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Now back to the show. The third time that Dylan peered out of her bedroom door, she came face to face with the killer. She was the one that gave the description of the bushy eyebrows and tall and lean but not buff. According to this affidavit, the killer walked towards her and then exited out the sliding glass door. She then hid in her room, locked the door, The authorities were not called until the next afternoon, so about seven hours after she encountered the killer. People are having a hard time understanding why it took so long for her to call the police. I think she was absolutely terrified. The affidavit did not detail any interaction between Dylan and the suspect, but they also didn't detail no contact. They didn't say if they talked or not or if they had any words. But I think it's entirely feasible that the suspect could have threatened her or her loved ones. He could have said, you better wait 12 hours or eight hours or don't call at all. This girl had called friends to the house before authorities were called for this, quote, unconscious person. From the surveillance footage, it does seem like he did come back before 911 was called. So in the end, she was right to be afraid. Even if he didn't make a verbal threat to her, Fear and trauma can cause someone to freeze. And she said that when she was standing in her doorway and saw him, that she stood there frozen in fear. That reaction could have lasted for hours. I've heard of people who were victimized or at the very least witnessed violence. And they just laid there or stood there frozen in fear all night and for hours and hours. It seems like maybe he had targets in mind. And we can talk about our theories on that. So either he really just had a very specific goal of who he was going to kill and stopped anybody who was trying to stop that. Like maybe Ethan defended his girlfriend or maybe if one, if not both of Maddie and Kaylee were the targets, he's probably the fact that they were sharing a bed needed to kill them both to successfully kill one of them. We don't know who he was specifically targeting. But to me, it's clear that it was not Dylan or the other roommate, Bethany, because he let them go. I don't know if maybe he felt pressed for time. If you're studying criminology, you know that you pretty much have five minutes or less if you're going to commit a massacre. 
that wasn't the case in the Columbine era. But since then, if you want to commit a massacre in a home or in a school or in a public place, you typically have five minutes when there's witnesses around because someone's calling the police. And this is a fact that even somebody as dim-witted as Nicholas Cruz, the Stoneman Douglas high school shooter, knew. He basically knew that he had five to six minutes to start and finish the massacre before he fled the scene because he knew that once it went past six minutes that the police were probably going to close in. And he was right. He got away briefly. What's interesting, too, is law enforcement asserted that the two surviving roommates slept through the whole thing, which clearly wasn't the case. There could be a lot of reasons for that. Perhaps they knew that the roommates were innocent based on all of the evidence that they had, and they wanted to prevent them from being targets of harassment, which I'm fairly certain they were. Or it could have been a tactic. It could have been to convince the killer that they were incompetent to make them feel overly comfortable. It also could have been to establish guilty knowledge in the case of false confessions with a crime of the magnitude of notoriety this one had. Some people do confess to crimes that they didn't do. And if it's out in the media that the roommate slept through the whole thing, that could help them weed out who was really responsible. This reminds me a lot of the Delphi murders when the police superintendent said, this is about power or control to you and you want to know what we know. But one day you will. By releasing the information that they released, they were doing just that. They were withholding the precious information that was left behind. And they did this probably knowing that the suspect was feeling tortured inside. Like, I left behind this sheath. I left behind blood. Somebody saw me. There are cameras everywhere. This guy's not an idiot. I think in some ways he is. But overall, the big picture, he's not. He had a lot of things to consider. He risked it all to do this. These probable cause affidavits don't always list the extent to what they know. I was a little bit surprised to hear that the DNA came from a button on the sheath. Well, of course I was because I didn't know that a sheath was left behind at all because they also kept that information secret. But I had assumed that he would have cut his hands and that his blood would be around. And it still could have been and they just haven't mentioned it because it wasn't necessary to drive the point home that he contributed DNA at the scene that only the suspect would have. It is interesting, though, because they were tracking him from his road trip with his father from Washington State to Pennsylvania. And according to recent media reports, when they pulled him over in Indiana, that was instructed by the FBI because they wanted to see Brian Koberger's hands on the body cam footage to determine if he was injured, which makes me think that maybe he did leave behind blood. Of course, when watching that footage, I couldn't see any evidence of injuries, but that doesn't mean that there weren't, at least at one point. If he was wearing gloves, it would have been a lot less slippery. I hope that the DNA that they did find, or as far as we know, that's the extent of it, but maybe there's more. I hope that that DNA sample is tip-top and not degraded whatsoever, because I don't want there to be a shadow of a doubt. But it, honestly, they have his car moving. His phone is off for the two hours in question. And he's back home an hour after the car is seen leaving. I wondered because I don't think it's more than a 20-minute drive back to where he lived from the King Street house. But 
I talked to Chloe about it, and I guess there's a few things that he could have been doing in between trips to account for the missing time. My first thought was the potential that he was disposing of evidence or cleaning up. It's not like he had a bunch of people piling in his car. He seemed like a loner, but his car did look clean by the time the police had pulled him over in Indiana. That's a lot of time to clean up the car, but I was thinking that maybe he took that time to get rid of the murder weapon, which was that knife. And I do wonder how he had a Marine knife, if he knew someone that had served or if maybe he had, and we just don't know that yet. It would be good to link that definitively to him. He could have thrown away bloody clothes. He could have found a shower at a truck stop. Who knows where he was, but I'm sure it was in the interest of concealment at that point. Even without the DNA, they seem to have a pretty strong case, having identified the vehicle. They also determined that he had visited the vicinity of the crime scene over 12 times before the crime and once after the crime. Brian Koberger has been extradited from Pennsylvania to Idaho, where he awaits trial for the four homicides. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of True Crime Twins. If you enjoy our show and look forward to new episodes, please take the time to leave us a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you use to listen. You can follow us on social media, on TikTok, in Twitter, we are at True Crime Twins. On Instagram, we are at True Crime Twins Podcast. You can also email with questions, comments, case suggestions at Podcast at gmail.com.